Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland, and this is episode 128. And this week is just a conversation amongst, uh, I don't know, four to six of the recreational players. Uh, I wasn't able to attend it. I was out of town speaking uh, in Detroit. And so Taylor Moss was gracious enough to host the discussion. And it was supposed to be an interview with Andrew Brokus, but we kind of I uh, had some missteps there on the logistics of things, so we'll try to get Andrew back on at another time. So it ended up just being a conversation. Uh, and it, to me, these are always great as far as uh, what's on people's minds and, and kind of wrestling with some things. So hopefully you will enjoy uh, this conversation. I want to thank Running Aces, who, as always, is our sponsor uh, for the podcast, uh, doing a great job. Thanks to uh, Chris Fox Wallace, who continues to uh, train many of us in the Crazy Like a Fox uh, training session. Uh, we've gotten through seven out of the ten already, and we're just learning a lot. And you'll hear a lot of that uh, in the conversation. People that are starting to apply some of the things that they're learning uh, and some really good community building happening on there as well. I, wa- I do want to give a shout out to the folks who were the Running Aces Players of the Week for last week. Nate Franklin. Kind of a beast, a regular at at running aces. Nate uh, took down the top with a nice 38 points for the week, which is a very good score. Uh, Clint Lighthizer, uh, another beast. Mike Ganser and David Cramber. So a really good kind of a who's who of the top four. Uh, Kevin Kelsenberg, one of my favorite guys there, uh, finished just out of the top four. He finished in fifth, but I got to give him a shout out. Uh, Just a fantastic dude. So congrats, guys. Uh, So with that... Uh, please get in touch with me if you have any questions, comments, concerns, whatever, steve at recpokertraining.com. We're kind of in the middle of figuring out what's next as far as training offerings go. So now's the time to uh, to be heard. So let me know what your thoughts are on that. Uh, otherwise, uh, here we go. Uh, enjoy the conversation. And thanks again to Taylor Moss. I went to this super satellite. By the way, George Sanford was there. He, he was on another table away from me. Anyway, we I brought my... I brought my Blue Shark optics because I wanted to watch people watching the flop. You know, we talked about that and looking for the eye flash, you know. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'll bring my Blue Shark optics in case somebody starts looking back. At least I'll have those and I can use those. As it turned out, I never needed them because nobody ever looked back. <laughs> so there was a guy at the other end of the table for me. I was in seat seven. He was in seat two. So he was very easy to observe, very easy to watch. And the uh, he was he I he was in probably 90% of the pots. He was in nine out of every ten hands, he was there. And he was raising. Um to, he was raising first in, he was calling raises, very seldom three bet, but he was in every pot and could tell by the expressions on his face that he expected to win every pot. He expected that he was the best player at the table. There was a couple of times when he was folding, when he did the old hold the cards up in front of him and just look at them and with disgust when somebody else showed him the veritable nuts. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he was just that, that personality, you know, that he wanted to be the table captain. He was blah, blah. anyway. So, I got into a couple of hands with him um, where I showed I showed down ace-king, and he lost with his king-queen. And then another hand, I showed down ace-jack, and he lost with his king-jack. 
So he was getting rather frustrated with me because that was the only two hands that I played against him. And I always had just one card better than him. So you could, you could tell it was really pissing him off. And so it was at, when I knew that I got into another hand where I, I think I opened with uh, suited connectors. I don't know if it was seven, eight or eight, nine, something like that. And the flop came King high and I continuation bet and he open folded pocket jacks Hmm. because he, he, you know, he was going to show me how smart he was. He wasn't going to let me beat him in another pot. And so it was just, it was just the psychology of that situation was, was kind of interesting because of his personality and the way that just a couple of hands that I played against him uh, heads up that just got him, you know, just, it, it got to him. So I thought it was kind of interesting. Not really, like I say, not really hand histories or anything, but just that the dynamics of what was happening at the table, I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. And I, I think that's common for a lot of people to like feel is if you're playing against this one person and they just keep kind of dominating you or always having you in certain spots, it's, it's tough to play against them. And you just, you never know where they're, where they're at, where you think you're winning and turns out you're not and vice versa. I know I kind of psych myself out a lot when I'm playing at a table and I'm like, Oh, okay. I know this well-known poker player at my table. And then I try and like play differently because they're at my table and it ends up just hurting me in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, you have to play it. You have to play it normal, I guess. You have to play it the way you normally would, even though it may be a little intimidating. Mm -hmm. I have kind of the, well, not an, I have a different problem. When I get to a table that has a really good player at it, I'm trying to learn from them. So I focus on them. So I find myself being drawn into pots that they are in more, which Mm. is absolutely the worst thing for my strategy. I should be avoiding them and focus on finding a player that I can pick up reads on, can beat somehow. Um, But I often find myself playing with the best player there, and that's really not a good idea. Hey, there's George. George showed up. Yeah, he was on a, as panelist. I just gave him the permission uh, to talk now since I have all the power since Steve is out. <laughs> but yeah, I mean... George, how- you, left, you left early Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday? Yeah. I did qualify one day. Got into oh, the MSPT, but... Uh, didn't do so good. Some of those big name players kind of took me to the lunch. <laughs> yeah, they'll do that. So, I mean, back on this, how do you combat the like fear of when you're playing then? Cause I know in the home game that we typically play in, uh, 
last year, someone had my number. It felt like all year long. And every time I got into a hand with them, I was just, I started off being like thrown off in the hand. So is there like some sort of psychological thing around it? Do I just have to like tell myself, you know, just, just play your game, even though this one person is dominating you? Yeah, yeah. You, it's easy to get caught in uh, in the moment, and I guess yeah. You need to you need to just play each hand as a separate entity without thinking of that history that you have with that opponent. Mm-hmm. Now, not t- entirely obviously, because some of that history could have a impact on how you play that hand you know they might you might know that hey they they think they own you so they may be have a higher tendency of bluffing against you knowing that you're going to be maybe a little gun shy because of the number of hands that you've interacted with and and that in itself could be a problem because if they're not doing that then you're <laughs> then you could <laughs> in a bad situation very true yeah i think you just kind of have to level set with yourself and just uh almost take a step back and go like all right this is a new hand i know this about this player um just because i've won a lot for them or lost a lot for them that should be not irrelevant but less impactful on how I play my hand, uh, but still trying to play the most optimal game at all times. It's tough to do. Well, in that in that situation, you might not want to go completely, you know, most optimal. You might want to do a little bit of play slightly more conservative, a little less lower variance approach. Realize that you don't have maybe your reads are off whatever it is something's a little bit off so i'm not saying make bad decisions but i do think there are times when you can kind of just say okay i'm going to just slow down a little bit here um until i get my bearings back again um but not slow down too much to fold jacks on a king high flop (laughs) right Right, right, right. Not slow down too much and not and that's that's the hard part. But, you know, maybe you don't three bet pre as much or whatever it depends upon the exact issue you're having with that exact person to figure out what it is, but maybe try to find a way to not put yourself in that exact situation. Like if the pots just get too big and then they tend to blow you off the pot work on keeping the pot smaller, which maybe wouldn't be optimal in most cases, but in this particular case might be beneficial. Well, I I think John um, brings up a good point. The the way I look at it, and I've had this situation a couple of times over over the course of years from playing, where somebody just kind of seems to dominate me for a while. And the way I look at it is I have to get back to the basics of what it is that I've learned about poker, whether it's, putting them on hand ranges or whether it's reading the position and 
and you know all of those things. But I really need to focus when I'm when I'm in that hand. And there are other players in my league where I can, you know, it's probably not optimal, but I can not be as focused. But when I'm playing against that individual or those types of individuals, I really have to come back and really focus on what it is that I've learned so that I can make the quality decision and I don't put myself in a bad spot. So I think that's kind of what John was saying. And I agree a hundred percent. I've had to do that multiple times. That's a more eloquent way of saying what I said. (laughs) (laughs) I was getting owned at the table as I finally looked up at the flop and watched the other guy and he was watching my reaction when the flop came and he was just reading me. And, uh, as soon as I quit reacting to the flop, <laughs> I could play against him. Yeah. That's an important piece that maybe someone is, uh, owning you because you're giving away some sort of information to them. That's always possible. Yeah, that's something I, I'm very seldom aware if I'm doing. Um, I don't know if I have mannerisms, the way I handle my chips, the way I handle my cards. Um, during a hand, if if I'm giving something away, I wouldn't know it. Um, I'm not, I, I don't do robotic style where, you know, I do the same motions for the same time frame every single time. Um, there's times when I'll spread out my chips as I bet up. There's other times I'll just push a stack out. And I don't know if why I'm doing it differently each time. And that could definitely be a tell. I don't know. Yeah, it, it's tough. It, I'm not the best at picking up tells on people, which means I'm not the best at concealing tells from other people. But I think sometimes it would be great to like have a camera on me while I'm playing and then go back and like, see how I do certain things. Like why did I decide to stop shuffling my chips right now? Or why did I decide that um, this bet was going to be just, you know, thrown into the middle instead of just like neatly stacked. And I think it would be really interesting to see that, but I just don't know what tells I'm giving off potentially. Um, Well, you know, it'd be kind of interesting is for a few of us who do play together occasionally to maybe have a session where we get together and get two or three cameras on us, record it. And then we play for an hour and then we watch and play it back for an hour and discuss with each other, you know, here's what I see from you, or I read this from you as strength or weakness or whatever we'd kind of be shooting ourselves in the foot with our future power again over each other, but it would help make us hopefully all stronger players. Yeah. The, the bad part to that is I would have to tell you all the tells that I have on you, John. (laughs) (laughs) Good part of that is I'm probably so incompetent that it wouldn't happen. Uh, that was low, Taylor. That was really low. I, I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> this is the perfect time to mention it. No, yeah, I, I think something like that would be like really interesting to like, even if it's um, like after every hand, like 
John does something in the hand and then all of a sudden like, you know, the reason I ultimately decided to raise here was because of this. Like it, it wasn't due to my hand. I was kind of on the fence with it, but I saw you somewhat hesitate or when I grab more chips, you seem to like freeze up or anything like that. That would be really interesting just to kind of talk about with that piece. Cause I know Steve has done in the past kind of like the, um, flip up your hand at the end and just talk about it. But it's more about like the hand strength and what you were dealt and what your position was. But even if that expanded to like physical, verbal, any sort of tells that, someone may have had yeah i think we'd have to like john said if we had you know we played for about an hour and just recorded it yeah and then look back at it and we'd probably have to keep track of what we had each time you know so we could go back and remember what hand we had when we did this particular action mm-hmm. i think that would be very informative oh yeah Jack put a post or put a chat uh, chatted out there that he was watching opponents during the flop and and still couldn't pick up a tell. They just stared at the board and that was kind of my experience last Wednesday when I concentrated on making sure I was watching uh, my opponents look at the flop. Again, nobody looking nobody was looking back at me and whether I was in the hand or not, I was always looking at somebody that was in the hand. And I never did pick up a eye flash like uh, Fox was talking about. So doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to do it, but it doesn't mean you're always going to see it. Yeah. It's not like it's uh, everyone does this and it always comes out type of thing. Right. I actually picked up a few um, tells during my session. It wasn't, playing a lot of hands so it gave me plenty of time to study everyone (laughs) um one of the hands i did win someone like they checked out of turn they were on the they had position on me but they did the check so i went ahead and bet at it at it and was able to take that hand down and another couple of times there was a player who they had the, they see the flop and then they'd immediately look at their chips and I just knew that they were going to bet out. They liked what they had so that I was able to not open with a marginal opening, just fold my hand. Sure enough, they opened and had aces. So (laughs) both times actually same player. Perfect read. Well, yeah, or perfect coincidence. I happen to see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it doesn't work all the time. I know um, in the past I have gotten kind of uh, a tell from someone, and I was playing it. It was like a multi-way pot, three-handed. I was the middle person to act, and I rivered a flush. And when the flush card came in, I remember I looked to my right, and that guy didn't look like he did anything. Then I looked to my left to the next guy to act and he was reaching to grab chips. And I was like, Oh, perfect. I'll check and let him bet. Well, he was just reaching to grab chips to shuffle because apparently like he had checked out from the hand and I checked and he checked behind and I just uh, pick up the small pot. 
So it doesn't always work. The tell that you think you pick up on doesn't necessarily mean what you think it does. Well, and the chip grabbing one, actually, that's one that can mean the opposite. Um, depending upon the player, I've noticed often if they're if you're out of position and they're grabbing for chips, that's their way of psychologically saying, if you bet, I'm going to call, so you better not bet. <laughs> so it's them trying to preempt your bet. So yeah. then, you know, get a little bigger. Yeah, I see that very consistently. The guys that are grabbing for the chips are usually the ones that don't bet. Well, that's kind of like the opposite of the blocking bet, right? The blocking bet happens when you're out of position. So if you're in position, you just grab some chips to make it look like you're going to call. <laughs> I'm not familiar with the eye flash. What's the eye flash? Well, we when you know when we talked taking some lessons from Fox, um, Chris Wallace, he was talking about watching people watch the flop. And a lot of times what you will see is uh, when somebody hits the flop, they'll flash down and look at their chips real quick, like they're getting ready to bet because they've caught something on the board. And so they look down at their chips real quick, and it's just a quick little eye flash down and up. Um, and if you see somebody do that while they're watching the flop come out, you're pretty sure that they have hit that flop in some manner. Yeah, I've heard of that before. I just never heard of it called the eye flash before. Yep. Yeah, Nick Ranu talks about that a lot too. Uh, he's got his master class out there. And I remember um, in the promo videos that he has for it, he's like, this is the one thing that's earned me the most money in poker. And he's talking about the eye flash. So it's a thing that uh, a lot of people look for. I guess I haven't been looking for it that much. Or I'm too obvious when I look for it. I'm staring at people. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's, you have to be comfortable doing that. I remember one tournament at Running Aces, I, there was a, a player and I've never seen him before. And he didn't look, you know, like he was a professional poker player or anything. He just, you know, a regular guy off the street. And we got into a hand against each other. And I think I was in seat one and he was like in seat four. So we were like right across from each other. And as the flop came out, I looked over at him and he's looking at me. <laughs> and we just kind of, oh, okay. Yeah. We we're both looking for the same thing. And we just kind of chuckled at each other and then went back to uh, looking at the flop. <laughs> but well, you, you never know where, when people are going to be doing it. That's why I brought my uh, blue sharks on Wednesday because I knew I wanted to, practice watching people watch the flop and if i saw somebody looking back at me i wanted some way to hide the fact that i was doing that but again all day long no one ever looked at me during the flop i was looking at everybody else and no one was looking at me so it worked out that's one thing i fairly regularly do is watch people watch the flop and in my experience, maybe like one out of 50, one out of 80 people will watch you as you watch the flop. Right. So it's, it's very rare. 
I think I make but it, it too obvious. Yeah. Because I see a lot more people than that uh, staring back at me. And then I, I always get the annoyed middle-aged white guy that sees me staring at him, doesn't like that I'm staring at him, and then like blows me a fake kiss or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm still going to keep staring at you. I'm sorry. I don't care if you're fake kissing me. I'd take that as a compliment, Taylor, if I were you. Yeah, I usually do. But yeah, I, I notice a lot more people. I know there's a lot of um, people that are somewhat oblivious to it, and they're just looking at what the cards are coming out. But maybe I, I need to like start tilting my head down and not make it so obvious that I'm staring right at them. Because even in our home game, Jason and I always, whenever we get into a pot, which is quite frequently, flop will start coming out and we're just locked eyes on each other. Then we start laughing. I saw that in the last epic that you two guys were getting into a lot of hands together and you're constantly looking (laughs) at each other and not looking at the flop. I'm sitting here thinking, are these guys going to actually look at the flop and take some action or are they just going to stare at each other? (laughs) It gets really interesting and fun. Well, anything else that you notice from the satellite qualifiers, Rob? Um, a lot of the regulars are just, you know, it, it seems like a lot of people are just playing ABC poker. You know, they wait till they get a hand, they raise, and they either they have it or they don't. And, you know, I mean, it's just, I don't see a lot of, I didn't see a lot of uh, people trying to manipulate other people. So obviously this is a $70 buy-in. So it's a small buy-in. So you're going to get a bunch of schlucks like me playing in it. Um, but yeah, I didn't see a lot of sophisticated play, let's say. Yeah. So when you say that, do you mean um, like three betting or check raising and stuff like that? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, pretty much. I, you know, I saw maybe, I saw two or three three bets and I think the hand <laughs> was pocket jacks yeah I think more of the people have become better satellite players and realize they don't have to finish with the most chips anymore so they're a lot more conservative than they used to be the last couple of years they've really uh, tightened up a lot which is the way you should be playing satellites you should um, essentially have a goal of number of chips that you have. And then once you have that, don't really need to risk it. Um, I was playing a satellite online and it was actually the one weird instance where um, I'm going to forget the hands, but I opened shoved uh, six, four suited. And then the very next hand open folded ace king just because <laughs> of the situation it was. Because I was next to someone in the blinds that I had covered by quite a bit, and they were on the risk of uh, bubbling. So I could shove any two cards, shove 6-4 suited. Next hand, I'm on the button with ace-king, but the big blind has a whole bunch of chips. I don't need to play the hand. I'm easily going to qualify. I just fold. It, it 
they are really weird situations, but yeah, yes. you get in, in spots where you don't need to have the biggest chip stack. You just need to have a chip stack. Yeah, I, yeah, think I, I got into a, a same kind of situation where uh, the, the one guy I was talking about earlier, the really aggressive guy, he had opened and then somebody had called him. So now there's two people in the pot and I looked down, I got pocket nines and I'm saying to myself, you know, I don't really need to play this hand. Uh, I don't want to play this hand against two players. I think I must have been in the blind, one of the blinds because I would have been out of position. So I just said, no, nah, I'm, I'm going to stay away from it. Now, normally I would play that hand in any other tournament. Mm -hmm. But because it was a qualifier, a satellite, I decided to, you know, not add that variance to my game. Yeah, that's the, the right way of putting it. Satellite qualifiers are all about reducing the variance in your game, especially later right. on. Now, everybody here listens to a lot of podcasts, um, tries to work on their poker, tries to look at, uh, you know, ranges against ranges. Um, I was listening to the post-flop poker podcast recently, and they got this guy, his, his name is Merv Harvey. He's the, he's the guy that um, hosts it, I guess. He kind of puts it on. And then he's got a guy named Ben Hales who wrote a book, and he's a professional online poker player that lives in um, um, Bangkok. Bangkok, yes, Bangkok. Thank you. And they had another guy on Scott something, and I don't know where he was from, but a couple of poker pros. So Merv was going through this hand that he played, and I think he plays in like, like in bar leagues and a lot of $100 or less um, tournaments. So he's kind of like one of us. Um, and he got into a hand with this woman and it, I can't remember exactly everything that happened, but he had Queens, he had pocket Queens and this woman, and he was telling Ben and Scott what this woman was all about. And she came out, she dumped lead into him on the flop. And that right away drew a big flag for Merv. He says, this woman would never do that without a really, really good hand. I think it was like a 10 high flop and he had Queens. And then she, he called and then she let out again on the turn and Merv folded and Ben and Scott just gave him a rash of shit because they're saying that you would, should never fold in that situation. You got Queens, which is an overpair to the board, and she could be doing this with this hand, this hand, this hand. But he was sure that the only hand that she could have done that with is aces, kings, or pocket tens. Hmm. So he folded and then showed his Queens, and she showed his her queen her kings. So she had kings the whole time. Now, these two guys are telling him that he made a huge mistake by folding in that spot. And I'm thinking, he had a live read on this player that he knew in his, he knew for a fact that she could never do that without a big hand. So what do you guys think of that situation? We get hung up on the math, on the combinatorics. Oh, she could have done it with this. She could have done it with that. 
But he was sitting there at the table and made a live read. And these guys are telling him that he made a huge mistake by folding queens. And his live read was totally correct. I think it goes back to everything Fox has been saying about you use your information to tweak the percentages of these items. So does that tweak her far enough to where so if if he, his read was right and he's 100% dead on 100% those are the three hands she would do that with then the fold was absolutely perfect right yeah but in reality reads don't work that well so it's more like okay on an average board she'd never make that play or she'd do it with do something else with it how much does it increase your percentages and i think that's where you have to look at it from a results point of view in this one case he was absolutely right would she is he right about her never doing that with any other hand and that you'd have to get more cases over to to know whether or not his read was in fact accurate yeah, and evidently this is a woman that he's played against a number of times in this same bar league over the course of the last year or so. So he's witnessed her quite a bit and seen a lot of how she plays to make that estimate that that is the only thing she could have been doing that with. She'd have never done it with King-10 or Queen-10 or Jack-10. So I think then the right response is for them to come back and say, you have to be really sure about that read, Um, which is kind of what they were saying. I mean, they actually said more along the lines of just because it worked out this time doesn't mean you made the right play. Right. But Mm -hmm. in, in reality, it's really, if you're, if you are that confident of the read, then it's the right play, but you really need to be that confident because in this situation, Queens are so hard, so strong compared to the rest of the flop texture. Right. Yeah, and I think the process of thinking either results-oriented or process-oriented really comes out to play here. Um, If you see that you got it right, you assume that you're always going to be right uh, because you saw the results that said, yep, I was right. But um, you don't know for a fact that she wouldn't make this play with jacks or with ace-10. Now, maybe you play enough and you can really narrow it down and say it's unlikely that you'd be doing it with this hand. Um, but the majority of hands that you play and you narrow someone down to a range, you usually can't narrow it down to like a specific hand or two. Um, and then at the same time, when you do make um, a bold decision like folding queens on a 10 high flop and you were right, um, that can also hurt your judgment in the future because you can say, Oh yeah, I made the right decision. Now, now I'm going to be more prone to fold Queens in the future because I saw these signs. I made the right read and I was proven right. Um, just because you are right. Doesn't mean you made the best decision. Cause I could offer uh, you. Huh? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Cause I can offer you, um, I'll offer you like a dollar to uh, we can bet a dollar on rolling dice. And if it comes out a one or a two, you win. And if it comes out a three, four, five or six, I win. 
And you'd say, that's a terrible bet. I'm not going to make it. But we rolled the dice and guess what? It was a two. Now, did you make the right decision by not betting with me? No, no, I, no, I agree with you hundred percent, but I don't have a read on how the die is going to roll. <laughs> I'm saying that, you know, we're in the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about uh, player types and the psychology of poker and how that makes um, a difference in how you play a hand against a certain opponent. And what I'm saying is that he was playing that hand against that opponent based on her player type and the psychology of what he knows she is capable of doing. So, but based strictly on combinatorics and what the, um, what the entire field would do. Yeah, you're totally right. He should have never folded Queens, but in that situation against that specific player, he had a read that said she is very, very strong here. And he went with that read. So where does the combinatorics and the math conflict with the psychology and the player type? That's what I was getting at. Oh, yeah. I, and I know we kind of went on a tangent there, but it is a really important piece to think about, too, because um, if you do have that solid read on a person like, Oh, they're I've only seen their like heart visibly beat once before. And they had the absolute nuts. And now I'm in this hand and I see that same read again. Well, you better be darn right that your read is right. Or you've played with this person enough to know what this means. Cause if you do have that read, then it can be, like the trump card to any sort of other information that you have. And I think that's probably what came out in this case here where um, I've got this tight opponent and they never donk lead into me on the flop and then continue again on the turn unless they've got an extremely strong hand. And I don't care that I've got an overpair. It's not good versus their range. Right. So it, it can get complicated. I agree. I don't think I could make that full. Well, I think, right. I, I Well, and how many times have you gotten married to a, a, a big pair mm-hmm. only to lose to the, somebody's baby's set or somebody's, you know, turned to pair? All the time. All the time. Because you get married to that thing and, and – after the hand, you go back through what had actually happened and you realize, well, that person probably would not have made that play without a strong enough hand that would beat you. But you're so excited about your big hand and you you deserve to win because you, you finally got pocket aces or pocket kings. This is, I should win with this hand. And you ignore the signs that they are giving you by their betting actions or whatever it is. And you go ahead and you lose with that big hand. How many times has that happened? Entitlement tilt. I just watched a great, a great video by Charlie Carroll. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He's at a WSOP final table a couple times, I think. Uh, but yep. he just, put out, he just put out a video called fuck GTO. And, uh, <laughs> it was probably about 20 minutes or so. And he talked about, how GTO is very important because you have to have 
guidelines, the only way you can recognize when somebody's doing wrong is you have to know how to do it right. Yep. And he says, that is all GTO is good for is to know when somebody's doing something wrong and then you change your style to exploit what they're doing wrong. And he said, if he was teaching somebody from the beginning, he probably would not teach them GTO style because it, it, it hinders your ability to read somebody and, and get those tells. And uh, it's actually a really good video. But I'm sure if you, you, you Google that, you'll <laughs> there won't be too many comes up. Yeah. No, that, that's a really popular concept that I've heard before. And something that I generally agree with is that GTO um, can be a profitable way of playing poker. It can also be a pretty boring play, way of playing poker. Uh, but knowing GTO or at least close to GTO in certain spots can help you understand where people are making mistakes. And that's where you're going to make your money is understanding where people are making suboptimal decisions. Yeah. And actually if two people are playing pure GTO against each other, basically it's a break even game. Actually yeah. the casino only wins with the rake. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. But as far as going back to that post-flop hand with the queens, there are definitely people that I play against. If they three bet, I'm, I'm going to fold everything but aces and kings because I know that they're a passive player. And if they three bet, they've got, if not the nuts, they got second nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Against You're those players, right. it's not – necessarily bad to call a three bet either if you've got uh deep enough stacks because if you know that they've got a big hand um you can sit there and see if you can hit your big hand if you've got the pocket fives there then you can be the one harvesting your baby set against someone's overpair and they're not going to be able to fold it once it comes out 10 high and you hit your five and then uh you go for all their chips that's true Depends on how big the three bet is. You don't want to go over 10% of your stack. Yeah. You want to know the stack depth, all that fun stuff. That gets yeah. into a lot yeah. more. But yeah. yeah I'd, rather, I'd rather do it with like seven, eight suited. Oh, I'll take my baby pair 20% of the time. I folded pocket kings here earlier this year in one tournament at running aces after a very conservative guy had opened. I three bet or raised. He went all in. I folded my kings. He showed aces. So I was right, but pretty conservative. But I knew that guy wasn't putting a move on like that unless he knew he had the pot. I've never folded kings pre-flop, and I don't think I will. Well, I, I didn't the next time. About two weeks later, a guy sat down firsthand looks at his two cards goes all in first hand never seen the guy before and <laughs> pocket kings next to him i called he had aces <laughs> I, I folded kings once that was probably about 14 years ago playing online empire poker and i was in a ten dollar tournament and when it got four bet by this one player and i think he was from germany or something he had a weird name anyway 
when he four bet, I knew for a fact he had aces. Um, the other guy called and I folded. Sure enough, he flipped over aces. The other guy had pocket eights and uh, I lived to breathe another day. That's the only time in my entire life I ever folded kings pre-flop. So you said you knew for a fact. Is yeah. that you actually knew for a fact or <laughs> is no, this just, uh, confirmation bias? It was like reading the, the player, knowing that he – I had kings already. I knew he wouldn't do that with queens or jacks or tens with against two other people. And I had the kings, so I knew he had to have the aces. And the other guy, two more he, kings in there. Huh? There's two more kings in the deck. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <coughs> Very true. So I made a mistake. I understand no, that. But no. <laughs> confirmation bias, right? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, it, it depends on the guys you play with. Now, when I play up at Malax, not so much anymore, but there used to be a guy up there that, that never bet unless he had aces, kings, or ace, king. Pretty much. Who I mean, is that? All your, uh, I, I don't remember his name now, but he was an older guy, but very conservative. And so if I had queens or less and he bet, I just folded him automatically. And I never saw a time where he didn't have at least ace king, kings or aces. Wow. I play up in Mille Lacs all the time. That's why I asked. I've never seen you up there, and I play there regularly. I play there all – that's I, probably – of the last 100 tournaments I've played, 90 of them have been at Mille Lacs. Usually a Friday or a Saturday night. All right. I usually play the senior stuff in the afternoons. Oh, yeah. See, I'm still a working stiff, so I can't get there until after work. I'm just a John Deere hat guy. <laughs> so Wednesday I did play that $75 tournament and I went and took a nap in my car afterwards because I'd already driven an hour down there. And then I played the 250 and I did qualify in the 1100 on that. You did? Yes. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, I don't know if you are here when I said, mentioned, I, I think I went out. Well, they, they paid – or they, they qualified eight and they paid ninth $50. And so I went out 11th. <laughs> so I bubbled the bubble. Yeah. The guy to finish 10th was in my home league. Bill. Oh yeah. Yeah. He had the short stack the whole day. He was always, wasn't playing anything. Was he on my table the whole day? No, he was on my table originally. Okay. So he probably got moved to my table, ended up to be the final table. So as soon as I left, that's when they combined the two tables and made it a table of 10. So what else is on everyone's mind? What's What have you been thinking about, uh, struggling with? I'm um, struggling with ace-five suited. And supposed to be such a powerful hand. 
and I've been watching all my hands as I've been playing them, and Ace Five Suited just hasn't really come through for me at all. What's everybody else's ex their experience? I know they're saying that's the the new Ace King, but I'm just not having any success with it at all. Well, how are you playing it, George? <laughs> well, very poorly because I'm not winning. <laughs> I guess I interpret, I mean, I've heard the same types of things, but I don't interpret it that it's really the new Ace King. It's just, so this is a hand that looks kind of crappy, but maybe it's the type of hand that would fit well into widening, widening your opening range when you're in late position. So if you're, if you're not, you know, on the button in the cutoff, hijack in those types of positions. If you normally that's a hand you would fold, well, you can think about playing or raising with it because you do have an ace blocker. You can still make a straight, and if it's suited, you can still make the nut flush. Mm -hmm. It's a hand that has a lot of playability, um, not as much like pure value, and I think forget when it was maybe a month two ago we kind of talked about the term of playability um and the fact that it can like go after straights go after flushes go after you know two pairs types of hands uh makes it easier to play on the flop because you know exactly where you're at with it um if you have something like ace king um a good hand but sometimes you don't necessarily know where you're at with the hand um, and then even more specifically, something like an ace eight, like ace eight, you can, you get yourself into a lot of like weird spots because it has low playability. Um, so a lot of people when they're making ranges will actually like cut out the ace nines through ace sixes because you lose the ability to make straights and then pick back up at the ace fives through ace twos, um, for that straight potential. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of uh, charts where it's, they're three betting ace five from under the gun. They're on. And uh, like I said, I've just not had a lot of success by three betting or calling and hitting much with it yet. So, I'm so it's not so much hitting, it's just balancing your range. Um, if you only three bet with aces, kings, and queens, then like we were just talking about, everybody's going to start folding to you. If you open up some of these hands that can hit, like your 7-8 suited, ace-5 suited, um, you still have – you have you cover the whole board. Um, mm. You don't just have Broadway cards. So when the, when the flop comes ace-2-3, you got a good hand. Um, but as far as ace-5, I, I don't really like to play it either because if you hit your – or ace-2s, or any of those, if you hit your bottom pair, you get beat by every card on the flop almost every time. Um, if you hit your ace, you have the worst kicker. Um, so you're only going for straights and flushes to be confident. And the straight, I'm usually really confident if I hit the straight. And, of course, the ace high flush. But um, I think it's just a good balancing hand to go with your jacks are better and ace queen. I, I kind of look at it as a hand that is uh, a good hand if you're in one of the blinds and you've got a late opener like a cutoff um, button type opener. You can take that ace five and three bet it 
because you got an ace blocker and especially a suited ace, ace two, ace three, ace four, ace five. Those are hands that you can go ahead and three bet. Again, because you have the ace blocker, you know the guy opening from the cutoff for the button should have a very wide range. And you could just take it down there because a three bet from the blinds looks very, very strong. And to Taylor's point, once you get to the flop, it plays itself pretty easily because you either have something or you don't. Yeah, so I mean, the small suited aces, I like them, but I'm not in love with them. Um, and I think that's kind of how you have to view them when you get dealt that. It's like, hey, here's a hand that I can play. doesn't mean I'm going to be playing it regardless, but um, it, it is a hand that can play pretty well. And then you kind of have to realize, okay, if you do hit an ace, it's not necessarily the best ace. Um, you might flop a straight draw, but then you're chasing a gut shot straight draw. Um, and then if you flop the nut flush draw, that's really where you get the a lot of value from it because then you've got the ultimate draw usually on the board. So you play that mainly in position towards the end, towards your high jack, low jack, or do you go right away and, and you're under the gun or under the gun plus one? Do you play that? Uh, me personally, I don't have it in my early position ranges. Uh, typically just fold that, but it depends on, you know, the game, the table, what's going on there. Um, once I'm in kind of that middle to late position, then that's when I'm thinking about playing the low suited aces. And I know there's a lot of other people that will always have it in their range. Other people that don't have it until very late, but um, I think I'm probably the middle ish. I find it as not a great hand to open with from any position. Um, like I say, I like to use it as a, a, a three bet opportunity from out of position, like in the blinds. I'd like to see if it's, if I'm in a multi-way pot, let's say uh, somebody from early position raises, we get a caller in mid position and you're sitting in that hijack cutoff button range with that hand. Um, you could go two ways with it. You could three bet it because now you got an ace blocker, but against an early position raiser, you might not want to do that, but it could be a good hand to just see a flop with. Just come along and see a flop in a multi-way pot, because if you flop that flush or that flush draw, you could potentially win a pretty big pot. So do you open it, John? Um, yeah, I do in later position. Uh, and I've, toyed around with it a little bit uh like if i'm on the button and someone in the hijack or in late position raises i'll occasionally three bet with it um but that's mainly because i'm looking for something to widen my three betting range right and i'm trying to play with that to see how people react to three betting because in a lot of these smaller tournaments, there's not a lot of three betting going on. So people don't know what to do with it. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at with it. Yeah. I think that's a good strategy. Like I say, I like to, I like to use it as a three bet out of the blinds because it looks really, really strong. And again, you got that ace blocker. And if they do happen to call, 
you still got some playability with the uh, suited aces like that. So, yeah, the main issue with it, of course, is you can't if you hit your ace or your five, for that matter. <laughs> if, you hit, if you hit, if you just hit a pair with it, it's not that strong of a hand. Two pair, pair can be good, but you're still um, risking being overdone there. But uh, it can be kind of hidden because someone yeah. might put you on like ace queen and they have ace king, whereas the flop comes ace seven five. Now you hit top and bottom pair, and you can potentially win a big pot that way as well. Right. The other thing to be worried about, and I've had this happen to me, is it comes ace seven five. You get it in versus ace king or ace queen, and then the turn comes to seven. You can get counterfeited and lose out of the hand too. And that's yep. painful. Now you're being results oriented, Taylor. No, I'm just I'm just merely pointing out, and the same thing you should be pointing out when you play low pocket pairs is kind of why you eventually have a cut in the pocket pair, is you can get counterfeited and there's it's yeah. a non zero chance of it happening. So it'll happen every so often where you get counterfeited and it can be painful. Right, and it's a little more psychologically. It's more painful because you think you're pulling something over on them. Meanwhile, <laughs> they're pulling something over on you. Yeah, or it didn't work out, or whatever. Yeah, and I think that's the key to the small suited aces is just being being afraid when you do hit one pair because you don't have the best pair um, a lot of the time. You either have you know bottom pair best kicker or top pair bad kicker. And so be very, very afraid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't want to play that fast. You want to you want to reduce your variance. You want to pot control. Uh, you want to get to the river cheaply. You want to be able to get to showdown as cheap as possible. And if there's a lot of money going in, chances are you're going to be beaten that situation. And to Taylor's point, it's a hand that you can, that has some playability that allows you to do some things like use it as a three bet option, but then you need to be able to get away from it. And the reason it's a three bet hand is because it has nut potential. I mean, you can hit the straight and hit the flush and that's why you want to three bet your nut hands. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, don't three bet enough and they're only three betting with the very top part of their range and as soon as you get off from okay well let's three bet a little bit more than the top part of your range you have to include other things and eventually you start running out of strong aces and then it comes down to well what do you include then if you don't include strong aces it's okay well i'll add in maybe a suited connector or two i'll add in um maybe king queen suited or lower pocket pairs and like none of those seem all that attractive but then you get into the the small suited aces and like you said they do have that nut potential so they do have the ability of like you know flopping great or uh, kind of getting that hand that you know is going to be your opponent and i think that's why they're a pretty attractive option to include in your three betting range And and I don't know if this is correct or not, but what I 
kind of did when I started looking for hands to three bet is I looked at the push fold charts. And when I knew that the ace five suited was good for 10 big blinds from all in shove, you know, uh, from a certain position, then I said, well, if I three bet to nine big blinds and they fold, that's the same as, same as a shove, isn't it? <laughs> you know, that's kind of how I uh, rationalized it. And uh, obviously, as you go through the push fold charts and add, add big blinds, it kind of gives you a ranking of the hand. You kind of learn the hand rankings. And you get stronger or weaker as, as you go, you know. Mm -hmm. It's something that I've always been kind of enamored with. Uh, kind of like a, a rock, paper, scissors type of game where if someone goes all in, it kind of depends on what they have. Like, do they have a strong ace? Do they have a weak ace? Do they have a strong king? Do they have a suited connectors? Do they have a small pocket pair? And depending on what you're holding, it can do better or worse for various parts of it. Because if you have a six, you're doing great versus king, queen, but you're doing terrible versus a strong ace. And you're also doing pretty good against a low pocket pair, but not good against a bigger pocket pair. And I've always been kind of really enamored with that type of like rock, paper, scissors type of game of what you're holding and what your opponent is holding and how that could potentially uh, like impact an all in decision in terms of who's the favorite. And that's just like my math way of like thinking about if you're the favorite or not in certain situations. So what's an example of where that would come into play? Uh, I don't know if it ever like comes into play, but just like thinking about what hands are good in certain spots. Like is my weak ace or like ace 10, like is ace 10 good here? Well, it is if they're shoving um, all broadways, if they have Kings King, queen, sorry, not kings, but king, queen, king, king, jack, king, ten, queen, jack, queen, ten, etc. If they're shoving that, like, that's great. Uh, but if they're shoving pocket pairs, it's not necessarily that great. Because if I have ace, ten, verse eights, I'm still an underdog. And then if they have a bigger ace than this, then I'm losing. So it's just another way of kind of analyzing the range and how your range, your, in this case, hand stacks up against their range. Yeah. It's a, to, to put it another way, you're starting to connect how my brain is thinking. So that's good. Um, if I add in certain hands to their range or take certain hands out of their range, like how do my specific hand fare against that? So is that based on a read of the player, um, this, the, the tournament situation, uh, the chip stacks, or is it all, a little bit of everything? I think it's just kind of like thinking about what is my hand and what am I hoping that he's shoving with and what am I not hoping that he's shoving with and trying to think about like how does that impact how well I'm doing. So you're thinking about you're hoping what he's shoving with without kind of putting him on a range of what he would what you feel he would shove with because you said you're hoping that he would be shoving with this um so to put it another way 
I try and think of like what is the worst hands that they would be shoving with in certain spots and then see how I'm faring versus those. Because I know I'm going to be doing bad versus aces, kings, queens, etc. cetera. Um, but if I've got ace 10 in a certain situation, I'll think like, okay, are they shoving with ace nine, ace eight, low suited aces? Are they shoving with small pocket pairs up to what? And then kind of use that to impact how I view my equity in certain situations. If that makes sense. Somewhat, somewhat not, I guess. No, I think it does. It just, it's a way you think about, you use that to stimulate, stimulate your thought process to then help better define their range. Yeah. I mean, the, the word that threw me off was a little hope, you know, cause yeah. I try not to play hope based poker. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't be using that word when I'm talking about poker. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> it's like when they about five people limp into a pot up at running or up at uh, Grand Casino, relax. And everybody's saying, "Hit me, hit me, please." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're hoping. Somebody had a little yapping dog there, it sounded like. Yeah. Kyle call. <laughs> so anyone got anything else? Otherwise, we can end our talk here. Uh, leave it up to you. I've got a hand if you want to go over a hand. If not, that's fine. Hey, that'd sure. be great. Yeah, let's go over that quick. Yeah, we got 15 minutes or so. Let's do it. Um, I don't know how to turn on my screen. I think I need some help from Steve Fredlin Consulting. <laughs> Crap. You you want me to figure out what to do. At the bottom um, of your screen, there's a green box that says share. Well, I'm not. One uh, second. I don't One think second. I'm a. It's going to kick him out and he's going to bring him right back in. There we go. Now there I'm in. Yeah. Now you should be able to. Now what do I share? Okay, can you see it? Oh, yep. yeah. Yep. Great. Okay, this one, I just, I don't know why I played this one this way. This actually isn't the hand I wanted to share, but I got another one later. Um, so let's get it started. This is a, probably a, just a small tournament on uh, America's Card Room. I play ACR, probably a $5 tournament, maybe a 10 um, but as you can tell we're pretty late stages. Everybody's down to about, looks like the guy has 28 big blinds it's on the table. And I'm on the button with ace jack off, 13 big blinds. Um, so I opened a two and a half, or I half potted actually, I hit the button. Um, yeah, you got about a, what, a one and a half? He checked you, right? Yeah. I might just check back. I don't remember what I did. Um, but yeah, 
It it all came from a mistake of not shutting free. Um, I did check back. The turn comes a six of spades. Well, I still have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're ahead of his range. And he bets out half, less than half pot. So I just hold now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think I agree. I think so. Just fold, you guys think? Yeah. 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 Well, I got, I got mad at myself and I shoved yeah. and <laughs> he folded. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was the wrong hand. That wasn't the hand I wanted to show you guys. <laughs> this is the hand I wanted to show you. I lucked out. This is early. Uh, it's only thirty sixty. Haven't it hasn't changed? Yeah, still got the same one as before. You oh, didn't, probably, you didn't share your entire screen. You probably just shared that one page. Okay, let me go back. Let's try this. Now can you see? Okay. Yep. We got Don Sheeb right behind me. Um, so this is early uh, 3060 is the blind, so it's probably second level, maybe first level. Now it looks like I doubled up, um, and I'm in the big blind, king ten suited. Uh, this is uh, voluntary put in pot. His guy's blaze is 32, and zero pre flop, so he's never opened before out of 22 hands. This is his first hand he's opened. Well, if that's a limp, he's that's exactly what he's been doing. The PFR, if he would raise, would show up. So all his oh. 32 is coming from limping, which is what he okay. did here. So we got limped around to us. You guys squeeze here? Uh, it's so early. It, I'm all right checking to see a flop, and I'm also okay with bumping it up a little bit. To about if I, 200, if I, or what would you go to? Oh, well more than 200. I'd go in the 300 range. Okay. Because if yeah. I've I heard the phrase that if someone is limping, they're willing to then call like a 3x or 4x raise. You really have to make it more like 5x to like punish them. And I kind of noticed that to be true. And I don't I'm not saying it's always true, but like if someone limps, they're prone to making a small call. So if I'm going to raise here, I'd raise big. Yeah, that, and you're also going to, you have the worst position. So at most, you want one caller. And ideally, if you're raising here, you don't want a caller. You'd want to just end it right there. So yeah. I, I agree with Taylor. Make it a little bigger. And one of the things I've, uh, I've been experimenting with in this situation where you got a couple limpers and then you've got a real hand you want to you wanna raise. I try to make it like two and a half times the big blind plus a blind for everybody that's in. So if you make it two and a half, that's what, 150 and then another 120. So you're going to be in the 270 to 300 range is about what you want to raise to. Okay. And that's what was said before is about 300. So, okay. I think I just went to see a flop. Flop looks not too bad. We hit bottom pair. 
Yeah, and an open-ended straight draw. Yeah. Okay, this guy leads out now. Or no, I... You did. I led out, sorry. I would check, personally. Check I would check, looking to check raise. Right. Would you be check raising, Taylor, or would you be check calling? Check call. So I screwed that up too. <laughs> well, no, this is this is a weird hand where like it could go multiple different ways. I'm by no means saying like what I would do is the perfect and only solution. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I, I, I think there's plenty of ways to approach this. I just think a lot of the opponent's limping range has queens and jacks in it, to which a check raise isn't going to get them out of the hand, and you're just going to be bloating a pot that you've got bottom pair and a decently strong draw but still just a draw. Um, plus it's multi-way. I would be looking to just check call here and kind of manage the pot size and see if I can hit and then go for value. So now on the other, other hand, if you had King queen instead of King 10 with this board, then I would check race. Okay. Then what about if there was a spade uh, backdoor flush draw that make a difference? Uh, single spade, I think I would still just check call. Okay, goes three ways to the turn. Yeah, I think that's fine. Yeah, I think if uh, that second player had folded, um, if you had checked, you got a bet and a fold, then a potential check raise there. But like Taylor said, in a multi-way pot, you probably don't want a check raise. Yeah, I'm. I kind of timid with the bottom pair on that on a Broadway board like that. Mm -hmm. So what should we do with a pair of jacks and a pair of tens here? My first instinct would be to check, and if it's a reasonable bet, probably call. Yeah, I think your only option here is to check. Uh, you should not be leading out here, um, and then call a reasonable bet. Um, um, depending on the size yeah and you you would i would check and if the uh blaze it bet and uh j love came along uh then like they said a reasonable size bet now you're getting pretty good pot odds if both of them are in now if j love raises i might just give it up right there Just because he's second caller, you pretty sure he has a queen. You're thinking, huh? Well, yeah. Well, no. If he raises, I'm scared of a jack from him. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Let's see what I did. I check. Blaze it checks. No, J Love. <laughs> okay. Small enough, I'd call there. Yeah, you're deep enough. Yeah, I'm 200 blinds. It's half pot bet. Well, okay, so let, let's think about this for a little bit because I'm, I'm a little worried about the reverse implied odds here mm -hmm. because you could be – let's say somebody, he had uh, Jack-10 or uh, Queen-Jack. At this point, we're drawing dead. Yes. Um if that player were on now ace jack it's probably unlikely 
either player has a strong ace because they both limped in pre-flop. So if an ace comes, I guess if an ace comes or a nine comes, it's still probably likely that we're winning the hand. Does everyone agree with that? Yeah, that I was going to bring up the point of like how many outs do we have? Okay. And we should have eight, but I believe those eight aren't always going to be uh, right. So if we have eight outs, we have essentially 16% equity <clears throat> or something along those lines. Um, but it's really the implied odds that would make us call here. Because I don't think a 10 necessarily does it, maybe a few times, and a king um, king might, on a very, very rare instance, give us the best hand if they're betting a queen and a queen only. Yeah, I'd give your I'd give your king maybe one king. You got to be worried about your nines. Um, Jack nine is a hand that people limp with, so <clears throat> your nine outs are going to be suspect. You should have all of your ace outs unless we're already beat. But if a king flops, any ace is going to give you a straight two. Oh, yeah. So then we're screwed from a king standpoint. You're right. That's what I meant. That's what I meant by the king. You might get maybe one out of the three kings. So if you give yourself one out there for the kings because of the times that you're going to hit a king and be dead to an ace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I almost think you can take that back away for the times to help compensate for the times where you're already drawing dead. Cause there, there is a non-zero percentage of the time where one of them has already voted up. Yeah. So what is the worst hand that you think our opponent is betting half pot with here? Oh, I, I play small tournaments, $5 tournaments, and uh, it could really be two diamonds. He could have uh, mm-hmm. nine eight of diamonds, and he'd be – Well, nine eight, he's got a straight. He's got us crushed. Well, okay, yeah, a nine <laughs> seven of diamonds, and he, yeah. he, he, would, he would be happy as a lark to go in with, with a bottom flush draw and a, and a straight draw. How about a king eight of diamonds? Yeah. I – yeah, I think with the flop the way it is, yeah, king he'd come in with. So uh, essentially what I'm getting at here is he either has uh, a queen or a jack. Do you think he's betting a 10 here? If he's got 10-9, would he bet out? That's a good question. You know, I would say he doesn't bet a 10. I would say it'd be like a 5% of the time. I mean – there are players who will do just about anything weirdly, but I think you're right. 95% of the time, not bet a 10. Mm-hmm. So I think we're behind, right? Yeah. Oh, well, how aggro is this guy? He seems pretty standard at 25-17. That's pretty Yeah, average. I only have 12 hands on him. Okay. Right. But, we also have a check and a check to him on this board. Mm-hmm. You can represent a pretty big hand when two people check into you. And and that happens a lot in the three and the five dollar tournaments. If it's checked to the guy in position, he's going to bet eighty five percent of the time. Yeah, I just I feel like this screams like a jack. I know a jack isn't the only thing he has, um, and if 
I was a cocky person, I would say, I know for a fact that he has a jack in his hand. Um, so I, I'm obviously kidding about that last piece. Um, <laughs> um, I, I'm not opposed to a fold here, knowing that we're just going for the open-ended straight down. Uh, but I can see reason for a call. Ultimately, what I think. You don't think if a ten comes, it'll win. Um, I wouldn't be piling in money if a ten comes. I think if a ten comes, the only way you win is if there's a small bet on the river and made by an ace, or if it gets checked down. See, and I would think of I I would have bet a full house. I would have. Okay. Yeah, I would. I'd call. I'd call here. See one more card, and even if you hit, you got to play it very carefully. Yeah, it's a scary run out for sure. That's a very very wet board. Like this is like the definition of a wet board. Oh yeah, got a flush draw, straight draw. (laughs) Yeah, look at the full houses. Look it up in a dictionary, and they'd show you a picture of this page here. Yeah, I have three towels underneath my monitor catching all the (laughs) (laughs) okay and we're going three ways oh Oh, all two okay here we go oh Oh, now what do you do (laughs) you hope it checks around (laughs) that's the definition of wet there check check Plotted it. Fold. You have to fold, yeah. Fold. Unless you're me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my (laughs) dollars. Yeah. You're never good here, right? No, never. (laughs) So he did all that with ace high. Yeah. And the diamonds. That makes sense. on On the flop, he has the gut shot straight draw. And maybe thinks his ace might be an out for him as well. On the turn, he uh, has the flush draw. flush draw. And he nutted it on the on the river. And he got his flush. Yeah. And he tripled up because we were both dumb enough to call. Well, and he's in position there, so by the time it gets to him, probably no one else has the full house, so he's good and. One of you might have a, another straight, so, or two pair, <laughs> yeah, or three pair, as the case may be. Yeah, uh, as the case, yeah. <laughs> well, no, but nobody bet coming into him. Nobody's got a full vote, most likely. Right, yeah. right. Can I ask a favor of everyone? Can you go back into your memory and just erase when I said I know for a fact he has a jack? <laughs> <laughs> No, I did refrain from rubbing it in, however. <laughs> I'll, I'll rub it into myself. Like, yeah. I already put it in my one note, so it's it's there. <laughs> I'm saving that one for Vegas. <laughs> but that's how bad I play. I just uh I thought that was a hard hand to to do anything with. I sh- I That's the dangers of a wet board though. Like you can flop decently well get a card that you think would help you uh but it was a diamond it potentially gave someone else a straight i would venture to guess that the other person that called as well had an ace and called with a ace high straight 
Yeah, I was worse there. I had three pair. You never win a three pair. <laughs> well, you know, if it makes you feel any better, which I'm sure it won't, but I very likely might have done the exact same thing, thinking to myself right afterwards, oh, that was maybe not the best play in the world. <laughs> but I can see myself, you get caught up in the moment, and um, I have to remind myself that it's okay to occasionally fold the best hand. If you're not folding the best hand occasionally, then you're not folding enough. Just like if you're not getting called with the worst hand occasionally, you're not betting enough. You know, it's not a game where you play everything perfectly. Mm -hmm. Very, very true, John. Well, well said. Thanks for going over it with me anyway. Thanks for sharing, Eric. Yeah, I yeah think we usually can... that's how I handle tilt as I hit review. On, you can tag these hands, and I, I usually tag them so I can forget about it at the time and come back later and look at it. That is the, the proper way of doing it. Let it out of your mind while you're playing, and then once you're done playing, come back to it. And then you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right. I think we can end it there. Thanks, everyone, for uh, showing up, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks for hosting it, Taylor. Yep. Yeah, no problem. Good job. Thanks, guys. Have fun. See yep. ya. Talk to you later. Bye. All right. Well, thank you, Taylor. Thanks to the guys who were part of that conversation. Uh, always a good conversation. Always good to get together and talk poker. Uh, never, a bad, never a bad time talking poker. Uh, thanks again to Running Aces for being our official sponsor. And if you have any comments, questions, concerns, reach out to me, Steve, at recpokertraining.com, and we'll uh, we'll touch base right away and figure out what's going on and uh, take your input under advisement uh, as we move forward with this great adventure. Uh, until next week, good luck on and off the felt. Take care.